As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The culture is the culture. It's four to six A to B, competitive excellence, and the brotherhood. Uh, the plan to win uh, has never changed. So the culture here and the plan to win is always going to be here at Ohio State. We're back with another episode of Four to Six with A and B, your high state podcast on the Athletic, and I am uh, feigning a happy disposition at the moment because Ari I feel like I feel like you're slowly but surely pulling away from me we got uh you're writing more national recruiting stuff I, I hear you on Andy Staples podcasting it sounds like you're having a great time and now you're getting sponsored by fast food fish sandwiches and I feel like I'm just getting left in the dust here what's going on you know what man you got to be careful what you wish for because you always push me away you always push me away and you always push me away and one day you're going to get your wish bill and you just got to make sure that's what you want your wish to be yeah, I'm having a little uh, buyer's remorse here, I think. Yeah, I know. I'm not built well, to last too on my late, own like this. This podcast is going to be here until the end of time. So you're always going to have an hour with me at least per week, no matter what happens in the future. So I just suggest maybe being more nice to me, maybe less condescension, maybe more agreeing. I mean, I've noticed that you've been agreeing more lately. Uh, I don't know if it's because you're – I mean, the filet fish thing just kind of fell out of the sky. It's got nothing to do with us. Uh, and you were on another co- podcast last week too, and I and I noticed it. So maybe you're just as guilty. Yeah, maybe I'm just as guilty. Also, an, an hour a week with you kind of sounds like the sweet spot. So maybe this is okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Once I we get to the end of the podcast, I think you've had enough. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to spend uh, that hour this week answering more of your Ohio State questions, some non-Ohio State questions, really good ones. Uh, the, the last two weeks we've done mailbag shows, and, and you guys have really brought it. With the questions, some really thoughtful topics. If you want to get involved in that way and ask us questions, you can subscribe to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash 4-6. Get you 40% off and a seven-day free trial. And you can submit those questions, and we'll try to get to them on the show. We're going to try to get through as many as we can right now. So let's jump into it, Ari, with the first question. You ready? Yep. Let's do it. From Ben P., 
What are your three most rewatchable non-Michigan, non-BCS, non-New Year's Six, non-playoff games for OSU football since 2010? So basically eliminating bowl games in Michigan. Okay, so do you want me... Let's go one each. I'll name one, you name one. Okay, Okay. so my first one, I'm going to take your thunder away because I think this might be your number one. But it's the first game that's stuck with me, and it's ironic because I haven't watched it since seeing it live. 2014 Ohio State at Michigan State, potentially the best game a quarterback Ohio State has had uh, when JT Barrett threw for 300 yards, um, three touchdown passes, rushed it for 86 yards, and had two more touchdown runs. And, you know, I know we've had our discussions on this podcast about where JT Barrett belongs in the history books of Ohio State football, but um, I think that was the best individual performance from a quarterback in Ohio State history or the past of the t- past 10 years. And that was also the game that simultaneously made Ohio State a legitimate national championship contender. They improved to 8-1, and 5-0 and in the Big Ten. I think Michigan State was ranked in the top 10 at that time, and then all of a sudden it was off the races. And... Um, it was a really good game. Yeah, I think uh, that is not number one for me because I, I, it's it's the most important game. If you take away all the qualifiers at the beginning, it's the most important win they've had outside of all those bowl games and Michigan games. But in terms of rewatchability, I went uh, in a different direction for my number one. I picked the 2017 Penn State game. Ohio State 39, Penn State 38. Again, it was it was JT Barrett's best game since the 2014 Michigan State game. And I, I guess I'd be interested to know your take on which one of those is a better performance. But uh, JT completed, I believe it was his last 14 passes in that game. Uh, they went down, was it 21 nothing or was it 24 nothing? Um, I think it was 21 nothing. And Saquon Barkley returned the opening kick for a touchdown. I think we all know the game. They, it's one of the games they've showed here. As, as, well, it's going to be on my list too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As I mean, BTN that was has one been of the... showing some older older games, but that was uh, that comeback was incredible. It was a huge win at the time. Um, they lost the next week to, to Iowa. That took the air out of the balloon a little bit. But in terms of pure rewatchability, uh, that's number one for me. That is my number one. Number th- the Michigan State one was my number three. I don't know oh, if I made it. I, I, I mixed it up. Okay. So we want, we'll go to my number meet, one. We're, we're we'll going to meet in the middle. middle. But my number one is also that game. Um, and part of the reason why, too, is not just because of the comeback where Ohio State outscored Penn State 19-3 to at home in the fourth quarter, but like it was awesome the entire game because Parkley took it to the house on the opening kickoff. And I love hearing about how Urban Meyer wanted to fire everybody on his staff. Was it, he the, was it the anecdote where he goes, who's in charge of special teams? He's fired. And then he realized it was him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that that game was one of the most hands on top of your head, I can't believe what I just saw games of the last 10 years. So I think that's the num- the perfect number one. What uh, 2014 Michigan State or 2017 Penn State, which, what would you put as JT's best game? 2014. Yeah, I think I would too because of what it meant to spring them toward a national championship. But in terms of just like pure playing and numbers and all that stuff and how he looked, it's pretty close, I think. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, like the 2014 version of JT, it's like I don't know if this is the correct thing. And maybe it's just in my head. And sometimes when things are in my head, they just stay the way that I think about them. But I think that like that Michigan game in 2014 was like JT Barrett in his purest form before all this injury stuff happened and the Cardale Jones quarterback battles and whether or not he was like, I sometimes like to think what would JT Barrett have been if Cardale didn't exist and it was just his team for three years. Like, I wonder if he would have been a draft pick uh, higher or, you know, would have turned out to be somebody who was a better passer, like his throwing motion 
um, at times seemed to you know vary, and I don't know why that happened. Multiple quarterback coaches, perhaps, but it just to me it seemed like he for somebody who is going to be remembered as one of the best players in Ohio State history, or at least one of the most important Ohio players in Ohio State history. I don't think he ever really got the momentum of development that a lot of the other players who have had success at this program have had. That's a good point that it is JT in his purest form. I think I agree with that. I didn't, I didn't thought of it in those terms, but it is because even the 2017 Penn State game, it was so good in the end, but it was so good because he hadn't played very well up until the fourth quarter. And he was awesome in the fourth quarter, but 2014 Michigan State was like, which was watching the game, like, who is this guy? He was surprising that whole year and was in a tough spot as a redshirt freshman forced to start. And that Virginia Tech loss, he was bad. And the team was like in the dumps a little bit. And they were just like, it was a slow build back up to this game at Michigan State. Um, like it was right before the playoff rankings came out, I think, um, the first playoff rankings and JT played out of his mind. So yeah, I think I would agree that that was his best game for a lot of reasons, but I like, I like the idea of it being JT in his purest form. And it is kind of, yeah, it's interesting to think what might have been if he was able to just sort of lock into that mode for the rest of his career, but he never really was able to after that, even in 2017 when he got a little better with Ryan Day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. I'm very excited to hear your number two, cause I think mine's kind of weird. So my the 2017 Penn State was number one for me, and 2014 Michigan State was number two for me. So my third is also weird. Okay. Uh, and again, it's rewatchability. It's not necessarily what the game meant. It's just like you want to sit down and be entertained. Yeah, yeah. Watch the 2018 Maryland game, 52-51. I'll that watch that game all day. That is a really, really good choice. You weren't even there, I don't think. You were. I was did the, you watch that on TV the first time? It's the only game I've missed since uh, covering, starting covering Ohio State in 2014. I went to the basketball game at Creighton and uh, had the option to fly from Omaha to Maryland to cover the game. And I thought to myself, well, that's a long trip. It seems kind of unnecessary. They're going to win by 40. And then that happened. <laughs> yeah, I bet you were relieved they didn't lose because at least very it much didn't. so. Yeah. Yeah, that was a very odd game. I remember I had a really hard time. Um, coming up with how to put that into perspective, and I think I wrote a pretty crappy story for what I think my game story standards are, if you remember. Do you remember the angle of my story? I don't. I think it was like the only thing I could write, and looking back at it two years now that it was stupid, but I just wrote, Ohio State proves it's not national championship contender, and it's just like, well, no shit, dude. Like It wasn't <laughs> like a, it wasn't a very, I had a hard time that day, I remember, because it was such an odd game. Um. But from a rewatchability standpoint, I think that that was just an entertaining football game. Even at the end, when Ohio State finally took the lead, Maryland got, I mean, like the two-point conversion thing. Like, I don't know if there's a, outside of the Michigan two-point conversion and, uh, you know, five or six years ago, whenever Tyvis Powell picked off, the, that was the most tense play of the last decade, maybe. Yeah, and the um, way it ended was so bizarre because, like, even like Tyvis Powell picked off the the two point conversion against Michigan as a 2013, right? Like yeah. this, this like the quarterback was right there, the receiver was two feet away from him, and he just missed him. We could have, all of us could have made that throw. I don't know, like it's like sometimes it's like some angels in the outfield stuff. I don't know what it is, um, but okay. So then you've listed your three, right? Yeah. So and I, have an, s- I have an honorable mention fourth as well. Okay. Well, my second one is uh, 2012 Purdue. Uh, just because I don't know that the game itself from the whole time was um, as entertaining as like that Maryland was per se, but like I think that any time Ohio State's losing um, as an undefeated team who's seven and zero to Purdue at home, it's entertaining. And there was a moment in time where 
Ohio State was like dead to rights in that game, and you know the story. You know, Kenny uh, Braxton Miller gets injured. Kenny Guyton comes in, leads two drives. I think there was some pretty poor clock management when Purdue could have just ran out the clock and they didn't. Ohio State was super fortunate to win that game, but I also think it was one of the more bar finishes that I've seen um, covering this team for the past ten years. I'm not going to say my fourth honorable mention because I just realized it, it doesn't meet the criteria. So we can uh, what we was can it skip though? past that? I was going <laughs> to. I understand that Ohio State fans never want to rewatch this game, but like one of the top three football games that I've watched since covering Ohio State was the Clemson game last year. I, oh yeah, you would never you'd never want to watch it again if you're an Ohio State fan. I totally get that. If you were a uh, uh, objective observer of football and didn't care who won the game, like it was a great game. Yeah, because it was high level football, and yeah. a lot of times, like when we talk about like even the Purdue example that I just gave was good because of how dysfunctional things were. Um, and to Ohio State's credit, they played pretty well against Penn State. And there was some, or I mean, uh, Clemson and some things went wrong. But when Ohio State plays another team that's built talent-wise the way that they are, I don't think it gets any better than that. That was a fun question. Thanks, Ben, for, for sending that in. Because we were, you were going to write um, a thing about like the 10 most rewatchable games. And I guess maybe there will still be time, depending on whether or not there's a season. But yeah, I never it's did a good that, jumping off I? point. No, you still have time. Um, there was one other game, and I'm trying to figure out what year it was because I can't remember off the top of my head. What was the game where Ohio State won on a Hail Mary um, against Nebraska at home? Um, I'm trying to figure out. It was, it was Braxton against, Miller was, throw. It was Wisconsin, wasn't it, 2011? Was it Wisconsin? I think so. I know what, I know what game we're talking about, yeah. It was either Wisconsin or Nebraska, and people who are screaming at the podcast right now can. Yeah. Tell us what it was. Yeah, 40-yard touchdown pass to Devin Smith with 20 seconds left to win uh, Wisconsin 2011. Yeah. I don't know why I that, thought it was Nebraska. Similar uniforms. That was one of my top 50 uh, Ohio State touchdowns of all time when I did that story a few weeks ago. Yeah, that was a good story. Um, Thanks. There were mistakes in it, but I appreciate it. I don't know if this was the ga- <laughs> game that I would uh, want to rewatch, but that was probably the single coolest thing I've seen. Like when you think about like things you've saw you saw like that is up there, and the Evan Turner shot in the Big Ten championship against Michigan. I was like standing ten feet away from him when he shot that, and it went in. I still can't believe that happened. This is not a basketball podcast. Sorry. Uh, next question from Eddie <laughs> C. Talking about this twenty twenty team, which would help the offense more? Trey Sermon and the running attack clicking or having two other receivers, for example, Garrett Wilson and Jackson Smith and Jigba, become considerable threats alongside Chris Olave. I'm just going to say the thing that I hope happens because I like watching it is the receivers. And, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong tactical answer from a football standpoint. And, you know, Mr. X's and O's can tell me I'm an idiot like you usually do. But, like, to me, I feel like if you have a really good running back, it might help in the zone read game. And it might help open up the field for Justin Fields if he, you know, gives or takes a little bit more. But Ohio State had a really good running back last year, and it didn't really cause him to or Fields to keep the ball. And I don't know if that's because he just didn't need to, which is the explanation that we were given, or you know, whatever. But I do think that if like you added uh, Chris Olave and then Garrett Wilson and Jackson Smith and the Jigba, and they were all 500 to 700, or maybe even 700 to 1,000 yard receivers. Um, and I think it's possible that you could have two players over 850 yards receiving in one season. Think about what that means for Justin Fields in terms of just getting the ball around Ohio State's offense 
And, you know, as much as a question mark there is for, for Ohio State's running back room right now, um, Ohio State lost a heck of a lot of talent at receiver. And I know that they're stacked and they signed four top 60 players at receiver last year and have guys like Garrett Wilson ready to come up and talent isn't an issue. There's still a lot of unproven talent in that room that haven't really done it yet. And outside of Wilson, who, you know, caught some big plays like the Michigan touchdown last year from Fields or Alave, who I think is one of the best receivers in the country, then who do you know you're counting on after that? So to me, I'm going to pick receivers. The running back situation is interesting. I think there's a little bit of a, of a of catch-22 there with that because if you are dynamic at tailback, then that creates some problems when you're trying to defend the read game. Like if if they go through four or five games and it's just apparent that like neither Trey Sermon, Master Teague, or, or Marcus Crowley, whoever's back there, is is threatening, all that threatening. Like they're good, they're they're solid, but like you're not really afraid of them. Meanwhile, you are afraid of, of Justin Fields. Like I think you would – that, that would be to Ohio State's detriment, I think, a little bit, as opposed to having a guy like J.K. Dobbins, who I think was threatening back there. So I don't I don't want to minimize the importance of that. But um, I think they can be just like, okay. Like, I don't know what clicking means. Uh, I don't think I don't think they need to be great back there to have a great offense. But I, I do think they could stand to be a little more dynamic at receiver than they were last year. Uh, and maybe that just means throwing the ball to Garrett Wilson more. But outside of Chris Olave last year like there wasn't really anyone in, in, in that group who I considered really all that threatening like KJ Hill was reliable but I don't think KJ Hill was explosive um, and I don't think Austin Mack and Ben Victor were all that explosive and I think Wilson could be I think maybe one of these other freshmen could be so if you have someone else alongside Olave who's going to really make teams defend every inch of the field because they're a threat to score like every time they're out there um, I think that does a lot more for the offense than it does if, like, Trey Sermon or Master Teague is a little bit better than we're expecting them to be. Yeah, I, th- I, I you hit it, bud. God, look at all of us. You're looking at us getting along. Huh? Who would have thought? Yeah, so Not me. Ask us more, more controversial <laughs> questions so we can yell at each other some more. Yeah. Uh, maybe Where we'll would you that, put JT Barrett on the list of best quarterbacks for the past 10 years? Oh, we're going we're gonna to get to that, don't worry. <laughs> I know we are, bud. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Andrew J asked, are there any overlooked players on this roster? For example, not established stars or guys who weren't very highly, highly thought of as recruits who you think might become a star this year. You want to go first? I wrote down a couple. Um, actually, let me add a name here because I forgot to do that. I think my answer would be uh, Cameron Brown because he seems to be a guy who's not played – he's played a little bit but not a ton but is in the position to play the most, I think, out of anybody who, who's not played much. And I guess you could put Seven Banks kind of in the same position. And I like them both for different reasons. But uh, Cam Brown was like tweeting – I think I think it was this past week about how he's the fastest defensive back in the country. And then I was reading a story in 11 Warriors where like he told uh, Colin Hosshill that he could run a 4-2-40. And he just seems to have a lot of juice to him, and, and I like that. And if he is that fast, and I, I don't know if he's four too fast, but he is really fast. Um, I think he can really pop this year if he, if he if he's put in a position to play a significant amount of steps, which I think he will be. So he'd be at the top of my list. I have some others that I think would also fit the description, but we'll get to yours first. Before okay, I, I don't even ask. know if mine counts. I think Cameron Brown is probably the perfect answer because it's somebody who people didn't clamor about during the recruiting process. Um, and he had to wait his turn to get into the cornerback room, and he's not like Jeff Okuda. Like, and he's talking shit. So, like, it's it's perfect. But, like, my answer is Jamison Williams. I don't know if that's that counts. Uh, no, that's a good one. Because he was a four-star prospect, but I think that he's gotten lost in the shuffle of his own room. 
So, like, when you think about all the players that have come in and, you know, wasn't even mentioned in the previous question we just answered, I think that he has the speed and um, probably a, a skill set in terms of just the way that he runs that's a little bit different than some of the guys that we're, we're talking about. And his nickname is Juice Man. So, like, kind of fits in there a little bit with the Cameron Brown discussion. But that was the first person that popped into my head when I read that question. That's a good one. I, di- I didn't think of him because his recruiting fi- profile, like you said, doesn't really fit the description. But he absolutely has gotten lost in the discussion with with Olave and Wilson and the young guys. Like he's just he's a he's a guy who just don't talk about a lot. And and I get why we don't. But I think we should also remember that he was pretty highly rated coming out of high school, and he also can fly. So we're talking about receivers who can really open up an offense. I think you know he's he has to be on that list. Um, I did not have him down. I, I had Marcus Crowley. Uh, we've talked about a lot. I, I think he's got like the combination of skill set that's like most similar to J.K. Dobbins from last year. I don't know if the opportunity is going to be there, but if it is, I could see him really flashing. Um, Javante Jean Baptiste, who I think maybe outside of Zach Harrison right now, like if you just like lined everybody up and like took a look at who you think are the best players on the team, like Javante Jean Baptiste looks like a million bucks. I've said that before. It's more about how you look. It's all you know. You got to put it all together and play that way, but. Um, I have him down as maybe like a little bit, little bit of a dark horse, maybe possibly emerge as a defensive end. Um, Marcus Hooker was a very lowly rated recruit who, if they do end up playing a lot more with two safety this year, I, I think he'd be the first guy out there with Josh Proctor. But the guy I wanted to make sure to mention was Dewan Jones, who was I a late was addition to the class. Pick. I was like, where are we going to get the Dewan? Well, the thing with Dewan is like, I don't, he's not going to start this year. Like I'm not, I'm not saying watch out for Dewan Jones to win the right tackle job this year, but I was talking with Steve Wiltfong, who is the national director of recruiting at Two Four Seven Sports, uh, two weeks ago for a couple different stories I was working on, just trying to pick his brain a little bit, and then we got on the topic of Dewan Jones. Like he brought him up, we were just talking about some guys in the offensive line, and he said, "Whenever you write about Dewan Jones, make sure you write that we were wrong about him, because he should have been ranked way higher than we had him." And this is a guy who, you know, talks with a lot of coaching staffs, talks with strength coaches. I think he's a pretty good handle on the pulse of college football, not just recruiting and how guys are developing. So it's a person whose, whose opinion I, I take pretty highly. And I think Dewan Jones, who I don't have here in front of me where he was ranked, but I think he was like in the 600s nationally when Ohio State signed him um, out of Indianapolis. And again, I don't think he's going to start this year. But if they need somebody to come in, oh, he was way lower than that. He was 1,043 in the country in the number 86th offensive tackle, which I guess, like, it's kind of hard to be. He might have been the lowest rated. wrong on him. Is he, yeah. like, the lowest rated player Ohio State signed? He's among the five lowest players Ohio State has signed in the past five years, and I don't even have to look that up. Yeah, I think Trey LaRue was, like, not ranked. Um, but other than that, Dewan Jones is, is certainly uh, among the lowest guys. Can I but throw yeah, – oh, go ahead. Sorry. I, I think he'll be – He's a guy when he signed and like you look at him, you're like, I don't know how that guy's ever going to play. And I think Ohio State might have come around to the idea that like this is who he is. He's a monster. He's 360 pounds, but he carries a well. He can play at this weight. When I talked with Steve, Steve threw out Mackay Becton, who was similarly sized coming out of high school and was just a first-round pick out of Louisville. Um, I think that's, that's a good comp for DeWan Jones. And I'm not saying he's going to start immediately, but in two years, maybe, depending on what happens with Nick Petit and there's an open tackle spot, and Thayer Munford's gone, um, I would keep him in mind because he seems to be turning a lot of heads and getting a lot of attention, and I don't know if I would have expected that coming in. You know, I'm surprised he was ranked that low because sometimes it's just athleticism that gets you there. And somebody who 
is that big usually doesn't move as well as he does. So I just think from that simple fact that that's, that's important. Let me throw out one more, and you tell me if this counts or if, if you think that there's a chance he could be an impact. Jerron Cage. It's a good name. Yeah, I considered him. I didn't put him down, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, to me, I feel like that's not somebody who's going to go, you know, be a first-round pick, I don't think, but he is a very solid-built, athletic interior defensive lineman. He was a little bit smaller when he got – to Ohio State, it might have taken him a few years, but I know that he is a kid who has a head on his shoulders and works really hard and understands what it takes to, you know, play at this level. And I do think that in the rotation, he could be somebody that um, has been a little bit forgotten about and could make an impact at least in the rotation. So I just thought I just wanted to say his name. He's in an interesting spot too. But like Larry Johnson, I think if he could, would like to play have at least five defensive tackles that he knows can play. And I think at the moment he has four. He has Antoine Jackson, Haskell Garrett, Tommy Togiai, and then Teron Vincent coming off his injury last year. And then if you wanted to go to a fifth, your only options are Jerron Cage or Jaden McKenzie, unless he wants to play one of these incoming freshmen who are like kind of tweeners inside or maybe play like Tyler Friday inside or even Tyreek Smith. But in terms of just guys we know who are defensive tackles, there are not a lot of them. And Jerron Cage is well-positioned, I think, to play certainly the most he's played in his career and depending on what that gap is like between the fourth guy or the top four and the fifth guy, he could re- yeah he could be in line to play a lot more. And he's like we never talk about him. His name ever comes up in any conversation about defensive line guys. Right. Next question from Paul R. Lincoln Riley believes that a spring start to the season would be possible, but that would mean Justin Fields, Chris Olave, most of our offensive line, and Sean Wade would likely leave the team to get ready for the draft. In addition to a few other players. This would put us at an immense talent disadvantage, and our depth chart, particularly on the offensive line, would be decimated. Is a spring start even a possibility, or is it fall or bust? Well, can I, like, pimp another podcast out while on our podcast, but it's also an athletic podcast? Sure. On the Andy Staples show, we talked about the this as an idea, and I think it would be awesome, is that you, you go and you play a spring season – you get out to your 85 scholarship limit. So whoever else, whoever leaves off of your team, Justin Fields, offensive lineman, Chris Olave, Sean Wade, whatever. And this is not going to make it fill the gaps of those players because if, if that happens, Ohio State is among the worst off because of it. Um, but then you can pick out of your 2020 class who comes in and is immediately eligible if they enroll early to play as, as soon in the spring. And, like, it's funny because we were joking, Lincoln Riley – is all juiced up about playing spring, and it's just like, well, he's not replacing a quarterback, and he just signed Caleb, or he just got a commitment from Caleb Williams, the number one quarterback and number four overall prospect in the country. So, of course, he wants some of these guys on the roster. Now, I don't think that Ohio State would be able to replace a guy like Fields. I think it would be tremendously painful for Ohio State fans to accept the fact that they lost him uh, because of the pandemic. But I do think it would be very fun, especially as we both like to make Madden franchises and build things and, and to retool things, how much fun would it be to take Ohio State's 2020 class, especially considering the fact that they have some younger um, – sorry, not 2020. I'm saying 2021. 21, yeah. Which is one of the best recruiting classes of all time. I think I've been saying 2020 the whole time. I mean 2021. To be able to pick and choose who you take out of that class. Like you could just go get Kyle McCord and let him, let him come and have a three-way competition with Jack Miller, C.J. Stroud, and McCord. Wouldn't that be fun? Like I don't know. Trevion Henderson could be your starting running back. Yeah, Henderson's your starting running back. Like there would be some pretty interesting pieces there. And Ohio State, like 
might not win the national championship this year, but man, could you imagine if that set them up uh, with all these true freshmen playing repla- the replacements, except the replacements are five-star players. Yeah, it would be fun, but um, I, I think to maybe get to the heart of Paul's question here, and, and he's looking at it through the Ohio State lens, which makes sense, but but this is true of everyone. In, in my mind, roster management almost becomes untenable if you start entertaining the idea of a spring season, which is why I think we've heard a lot of ADs talk about that being the last resort, and obviously it would be. I don't know if we're heading to that or not. Um, I would have a lot of questions about the safety of that, and I understand that there are also safety and health questions that come into play if you try to play this fall as well. I'm, I'm not saying there wouldn't be, but the idea that you would try to play a season in the spring and then turn around and play another season in the fall, like football is not built for that. And if you played in the spring, you would have it would have long-lasting impact on, on subsequent seasons, I think possibly even two or three years down the road, because you cannot, in good faith, ask football players, particularly unpaid football players, to play two full seasons or even one truncated season and a full season in what amounts to what, like a eight month span or six month span, something like that. That's not six months, but the fact, the idea that you would like end your season in April and then be back on the field again in, in July, late July and hitting again, I, that idea doesn't sit well with me. Um, I've said all along that I think they're going to do everything they can do to play a season. And that includes playing in the spring if it came to it. But I, I would almost have, and maybe this is a crazy thing to say, I would almost have more questions about doing that than I would trying to play this fall. Yeah, because coronavirus is dangerous, but so is playing 20 games in a six-month period. Um, and I don't even know if that's physically possible. Um, but I do think that – I mean, I don't know what they're going to do. They're, but when the NFL draft said we're not postponing the draft, I think that kind of like – that was it. Because, like, I think that there's questions, and I had got into a – I don't know if we want to go down this road right now, but I think there are questions of why a guy like Sean Wade – well, maybe not Sean Wade because he needs to play into the first round, but a guy like – Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields would even play now. Like, why expose yourself to the virus? You're an unquestionable number number one, number two, number three pick. Like, and then that opens up Pandora's box in an entirely different discussion. I'm not sure we want to have right now. But I do think that if you're putting yourself in a position to expose yourself to a virus that um, potentially does have long-term effects or can have long-term effects on your breathing, you know, I don't know if being in the Woody Hayes Athletic Center right now is the most prudent thing for somebody like that to do. So... I think they've got a lot to figure out, and playing in the spring which just sounds like a complete disaster to me. I don't think it's fall or bust, but spring, I think, is absolute last resort. I mean, you talk about pushing it back, shortening the season, whatever. Anything you possibly can do to play before the spring, before that gets to the table. But we might be at that point already. I don't know if we are or not. I know the Ivy League is supposed to have something come down this week, and the anticipation is that they're going to push their season to the spring. And... While I understand the sentiment that that could be like the first domino to fall in FBS moving their season to the spring, I'm not going to pretend like we're talking about the same sport because we're not. And I know that it lined up that way with basketball when the Ivy League canceled its tournament and then everything fell into place Um, behind that. There are way different considerations for FBS major college football to make than the Ivy League. So I'm not – when the Ivy League inevitably announces what it sounds like it's going to happen this week that they're playing in the spring, I'm not going to be like, oh, here we go. Everyone's going to the spring. I just don't think that's going to be the case. Yeah, no, and it's it's an extremely complex issue that has so many moving parts. It, like, hurts my brain to try to put all the pieces together. Like, I don't even know where to start with that stuff. 
yeah, it's pretty dense. And so we don't, I don't want to get lost in the weeds too much with it. Um, and, and, you know, Lord knows we'll have enough time to talk about it probably moving forward here. Uh, next question from Wesley K. He just asked, we'll be interested in hearing your thoughts comparing Ryan Day's staff. Oh, I read this wrong. He says Ryan Day's staff strength versus Urban Myers. When I picked this question out, I thought he was saying compare Ryan Day's strengths to Urban Myers. I guess we can do both. I think comparing Day and Urban's is a little more interesting than comparing their staffs. Yeah, I mean, their staffs also... I mean, it's just going to give you a layup to Bill Davis. So, like, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, here's, here's what I'll say about Ryan Day Steffs. Um, <laughs> he has yet to hire the best man from his wedding. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of overlap, but the mistakes or the ones that you would criticize, I think, have been criticized enough. But if you want to talk about strengths, I'll, I'll, I'll go down that road with you. Yeah, let's do, let's do. I guess the ways we think they're similar first, and then we can see where where they diverge a little bit. Um, I think they're they're like organization and alignment, which are like are never the sexiest things to talk about, but are important. Um, and you could argue that Urban lost a little bit of that at the end, but I think before that it was pretty good. And Ryan Day um, seems to be following in a similar suit, and maybe even Urban was like laser focused on everything and super intense. And I don't know if Ryan Day is quite that way. Maybe he has a little more of a healthy balance, but I think the end results are the same. Where um, you wouldn't have to worry so much about your team being underprepared or um, caught off guard by something, maybe even to a greater extent with Ryan Day than you went with Urban. I think, I don't know if this falls under the category of organization, so you tell me if it does, but I think that they're both very well equipped um, to lean on their staff. Um, And I think it's for different reasons. I think Urban Meyer did it because he was the boss and had won national championships at a previous stop, um, knew how to build a program, and also didn't want to drive himself crazy the way that he did at Florida, so he hired a top-of-the-line staff to do their jobs, and he let them do it. And I think at times that might have even been to a detriment, but he let them do it. And Ryan Day coming in understood that in order to be the CEO of Ohio State's football program, he can't come in as a 40-year-old who had never been a head coach before and then stop relying on his assistants to do the things that they need to do from a recruiting standpoint, um, coming up with their own boards, recruiting the players they like, giving in to their assistance for, you know, we got to take this kid. There's a lot to it than that. And I think both have done a very good job of, for the most part, hiring very good staffs and, and then letting those staffs do their job. Because I think when people try to micromanage or get too over their heads, I think that creates dissension within the staff, turnover within the staff, and then ultimately leads to downfalls. I think Ryan Day's done a good job of being the boss, being stern, being the face of the program, but also relying on his people the way that Urban Meyer did. We didn't talk about the most important thing where they're both strong, and that's recruiting. Yeah, and I think it's kind of a manifestation of what I just said, but also just a relentless attitude and a joy of wanting to do it. I I, I think that it's funny because you can say, well, they're both really good at recruiting, but Bill, can you imagine how different each in-home visit would be with those guys? Like, cause yeah. They've got such different styles. Like when you're sitting in an office, we both have sat in Urban's office, we both sat in Ryan Day's office. I had one-on-one conversations with both of them. When you're talking to Urban, it's like he's larger than life. I don't know how to describe it, but it's just like it's almost like he's not a person. Does that make sense? Like it's like mm-hmm. you're looking up to this guy, you want to be in your best. And when you're talking to Ryan Day, it's like you're talking to an assistant coach that you know. And it, it really hasn't changed all that much from what it was like to have conversations with him about things when he was the offensive coordinator. And I do think that that also translates to recruiting. Like when a when a high school prospect gets a text from urban meyer like that is a much different experience than it is for getting one from ryan day 
and talking to them both is different. And maybe that'll change as Ryan Day continues to make playoffs, recruits top five classes and whatever. But I think they both are relentless, which is the number one trait. But I do think that they both live within themselves and who they are. And I think that that's had um, a pretty good impact. And some players might not want to play for Urban, but would love to play for Ryan and vice versa. You know, and we won't know who those players are. But if, you know, there's 100 players in America and 50-50, then they're getting the other 50. And I think that's important to, to recognize. I think there's also something about like their involvement in recruiting, and I, I don't know the national landscape well enough to say this definitively, but you hear stuff sort of anecdotally about how involved head coaches might be and like the, the length of time that head coaches might put into certain recruitments. And it seems like Ryan Day and Urban Meyer both are probably, and uh, you know, especially considering where they are and like what the brand does for them, just sort of um, naturally. Ryan Day and Urban Meyer seem. Uh, very involved, I think, compared to maybe your average head coach. I hear that they are calling and texting more. And as I continue to kind of spread my wings and and write about other programs, it seems like they are more involved in just random discussions with the players themselves. And I think that play that makes a huge difference in in recruiting and relationships. And I don't like. I think that the most obvious difference I, I think would be maybe Ryan Day's creativity. Or, or maybe creativity might even be, might not be the word. Maybe like versatility is a be, is a better word for it. Urban has a rightful place as like one of the godfathers, maybe the godfather of the modern spread offense, and applying that kind of football to not just bad teams looking for an equalizer, but to the teams with the best talent. And he changed the game. And I'm not trying to undersell that, but I also think, and I'm sure Ohio State fans think too, that uh, it got a little stale. And I think Ryan Day is the kind of person who might not ever let his offense get stale. I agree. And I think that that might go over to the staff as well. If, if the original question was how are their staffs different, um, one, there's a lot of overlap, so they're not they're not greatly different. But I do think that at least with Ryan Day's initial staff, um, it felt like there was like a, just like some more schemers on that staff, like. And I, I, you know, Bill Davis is the punching bag, but like Bill Davis is not someone who I look at like that guy's got a very acute football mind. And I think that some of the guys that Ryan Day brought in, and maybe it's a, it's an unfair thing that I would attribute to like youth um, with like Jeff Halfley and now Washington, but those guys seem very sharp and, and forward thinking. And there was just a little more energy, I think, to that staff. And maybe that's inevitable when you just bring new guys in. But it seemed, everything just seemed like a little fresh with them. And, and I don't know if that's a fair comparison or not, but that it, did, it felt different last year with, with day staff compared to Urban's staff for the last couple of years. Nicholas H. with a non-football question. Uh, if you've ever had food poisoning, how long did it take you to get back on the horse and try it again? He recently ate one of his favorite fast food restaurants and he got food poisoning and he's trying to figure out when he will try it again. I've only had ever, I've only ever had one really bad experience with food poisoning. And I think you guys have heard me talk about it before. It was right before the national championship game. We went to a Denny's in Dallas and then I spent half the national championship game in the bathroom. Uh, and I have not gone back to Denny's since then. So my answer would be if something gives you food poisoning, don't go back ever again. And he hasn't, he won't go to Denny's. And I think Denny's is the best of the diner like, breakfast places uh and he hates ihop too he doesn't like breakfast he only likes waffle whoa, whoa, house whoa, 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 whoa. i love no, breakfast no, no 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 he loves breakfast i'm saying you're, it's like you have a thing against breakfast when we're on the road though and it's like the only place that we can get an omelet is waffle house now 
well, you know, Waffle House is great, and IHOP and Denny suck. I've never had food poisoning. I actually don't even know what food poisoning is. Is it just you having negative reactions through, uh, you know, sick, like throwing up and going to the bathroom, or like what? What's the actual definition of food poisoning? I'm not a doctor, but I would I would assume that uh, it's when it, it comes out of either end, uh, and you don't want it to. Yeah, well, I think it's hilarious, and I'll never forget until the day that I die that you missed the entire half of the national championship game <laughs> in the bathroom. And I don't know if we can absolutely pinpoint it to, to Denny's, because we had Denny's like at 2 in the morning, and the game was the following night. I'm sure you ate before you got to the press box. So I'm not sure that Denny's has ever gotten the right rap on that. Um, you know, but... I would go right back if it's your favorite place. Like I don't know, stuff happens. Like I mean, build up a tolerance. Like like let's put it this way. Now that I'm sponsored, I would if the filet fish made me somehow sick. I would still eat it. Yeah, the thing with me, like I didn't, I had no affinity for Denny's before, so it was easy for me to one put the blame on Denny's, even if that wasn't true, and two never eat there again. If it was a place that I really liked and I got it, it would be harder. I would say. Uh, yeah, wait until I'm assuming that by this point the the sickness feeling has passed. I'd go right back at it because you need to know. You need to know if it's something that's going to keep happening, right? Yeah. So well, you go back. You go back at it. And if it happens again, then you know. If it doesn't happen again, you're good to go. You're in the clear. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't. I, your body is now immune to whatever happens. So just in, enjoy it. And I, I would love to know what it is. Uh, depending on like if it's Taco Bell or something, don't go to Taco Bell because it's not good. But, like, if it's, like, your favorite fast food burger, like, you just might have to live with the sickness, pal. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Uh, Brian R. asked this question last week. We didn't get to it, so we'll get to it this week. It says, going back to the well, what are, your, what are your favorite and worst parts of your job, and what are the favorite and worst parts about covering an elite team? Let's tackle the – let's break them up. We'll do the first one. Uh, part of the job. What's your favorite part of the job and the worst part of the job? My favorite part of the job is – getting paid to go to football games and like think about football and it's like stuff that fans do for fun like it's their escape from work to go like look at the 247 rankings or to you know look at commitments and stuff and it's just like that's what we do all the time and like I am truly blessed and I love every minute of my life and I am thankful to those at the athletic who have supported us and have allowed us to continue to do these things um I'll let you say what your favorite part of the job is now and traveling my, with Bill is also my favorite part. Yeah, it's all, it's all the same. Like, I, I guess you travel to the same places for the most part. But, you know, when, when bowl season rolls around, you get to go to cool places. Um, Ohio State is beefing up its non-conference schedule so we get to travel places and we don't have to pay for it. But it's mostly just the idea that, like you said, for for a lot of people, um, this is an escape. Like, watching football is, is an escape. It's a hobby. It's something they do for fun. And it's like what we get to do all the time. It's our job, which is like crazy when you think about it that way. And sometimes I like wonder how it even happened or how this is even a job. And I'm very appreciative that it is. And I, like you, I, I thank everyone who supports what we do so we can keep doing it. Um, but it's just the same. I, I, I would imagine it's along the same lines of, and I, I hesitate to make this comparison, but like if you are playing, like the idea that you can play a sport for a job has to be pretty surreal. And like this isn't on the same level, obviously, but for someone like myself who's not athletic and has no shot in the world of ever playing a sport for money, like this is the cl- as close as I can get, and that's pretty damn cool. So that's my favorite part. And I think that when people like us were in college and deciding what do you want to do with your life, like, well, I can't play sports, but I want to be involved in it. Like being a sports journalist is kind of like the natural answer, and that's kind yeah. of how I arrived at it. I mean, I, I enrolled at the University of Arizona in the business program, and like 
my father encouraged me to follow doing something that I might want to do. And then like, I found a love for being sports writer. Like I didn't know, like in high school, this is what I want to be forever. Like I kind of found it in college and I'm happy that I did. And I, and I love it. Um, but yeah, I mean, being close and building relationships and, you know, just being able to, you know, rub shoulders with people like urban Meyer, not, not from a fan standpoint, but just the idea that, he is going to be revered as one of the greatest coaches of all time and like to learn things from him and have discussions with him. And, you know, I just think it's kind of a cool way to, to kind of broaden your horizons a little bit. So like just having your work out there exposed, I think is a very uh, vulnerable um, part of the job. Everything that we write goes out there, everything that we think and do and say, and this criticized, there's a lot of very hateful people online. And I don't know why this is the case, but um, there is a, a a large contingent of my following, uh, at least on Twitter, and people who don't follow me, who uh, gut instinct first reaction to everything that is done is to be hate hateful, and I I feel bad for people that are like that, and um, that's one of my least favorite parts of my job is uh, interacting with people who are like that. Um, but I, for the most part, I'd say ninety nine percent good, one percent bad. The other part is ever covering a story that involves a courtroom. I don't really love that. Um, it's very stressful. I'm not a court reporter. I know that there are ethics and things that are involved with the law that I don't understand. And trying to do those things on the fly is a admittedly vulnerable position to be in. And I also hate transcribing, which means <laughs> taking all the interviews that we have that are recorded and plugging it into your computer and then typing it all out. My, uh, least favorite part is purely it's it has really nothing to do with the job itself um but the schedule covering college football as a sports journalist is probably the best schedule you can have because there's like a real off season there's not much happening there are lull periods where you can kind of escape a little bit but uh i love thanksgiving i love christmas and spending time with my family and you and i are one of the few people on the ohio state beat like who aren't from ohio and uh like i I think since I've started doing this job in 2014, I think maybe I've been with my family on Christmas two or three times. And maybe I think I've been home for Thanksgiving like twice, um, which is fine. Like I know there are other people who in different lines of work who encounter similar things, but um, that's the only part of doing this that I really don't like all that much. I don't know if people care about that, but that's my answer to that question. Um, and then the favorite parts or worst parts about covering an elite team, like the only, the only bad part of covering an elite team is like sometimes they're so good they can be boring. And that's on our side. I understand if you're a fan, that's not the case because it's fun to watch your team kick the shit out of everybody. But like when we're at Ohio State and Maryland and the final score is 63 to 2, then we got to figure out something interesting to write two. about that. Like, <laughs> they don't get not, two. That's not, that's not, all, like it's, that's not, that's not fun. And it's, I'm not saying like I want Ohio State to lose to make it fun, but, um, we like to be entertained too. And I think maybe our entertainment comes in, in different ways. Um, and, and a lot of games that Ohio state plays just aren't all that entertaining and make it difficult to write about because they're so good. But the flip side of that is, and it's something you touched on Ari, like the idea that we're around people who are like the best in their field, whether that's players or, or coaches or even some of the staff members at Ohio state or, or someone like Gene Smith, even uh, that's pretty cool. I, I think any time, any opportunity you have to talk with and listen to smart people talk about the thing that they're great at is a really interesting opportunity. So, so I never try to take that for granted. The one thing that I think that we need to say, and this is one thing that we don't have to deal with much anymore, but we did at our old job, um, is the one drawback about being a sports writer is it's a it's got very odd hours. So a lot of times you you work a lot on the weekends and. 
you know, the college football shows at 8 p.m. on Tuesday, and like while everybody's enjoying the show, we're like in our offices writing about it. Um, but the thing that has always been tough to cope with, and it's not so much the same now at the athletic because we have more time to kind of do things, is is that something can happen in your life at a split second. It doesn't matter what you're doing, who you're with, where you are, that you need to be alert and ready to go. And like Jim Trestle resigned on Memorial Day morning and I was out that night and I like slept three hours past it or like I'm at dinner with my girlfriend in Texas um, a few months ago and the NCAA tournament gets canceled and we got to start trying to like come up like and I had to leave dinner and like there's things like that that are tough to cope with but I would say you know as, as much as it is an odd job the one thing that I am thankful for Bill is that it never feels like when you go to bed for your nine to five that like you're dreading the next day like I have to wake up and I've got to go to the office or I've got, like I don't feel like I have a actual job where I have to be accounted for and that's tough or that's amazing the only thing that's tough is that like I have to be glued to my phone at all times because I don't want to miss anything yeah we don't have traditional hours which can be great because like you can go to the grocery store at 11 o'clock in the morning when there's nobody there but you also might have to like unexpectedly start working at 11 p.m. on a Friday night it's not, it's not common, but it happens. Um, all right, let's stop talking about ourselves and get back to football and, and talk about things people are interested in. I'm going to skip around here a little bit because I want to make sure we get to some things before we run out of time. So let's do this one uh, from Justin O. Two-part question, and I really just want your take on the first part of it. We can get to the second part if we have time. How many national championships did JT Barrett's, quote, leadership cost Ohio State? And the second part of the question was, why does everyone give Kirby Smart so much grief for picking from over Justin Fields when Meyer picked Barrett over Haskins and Burrow. I don't know if that's true. I think Urban got quite a bit of shit for that, especially retroactively. Um, but let's do the first part first. How many national championships did JT Barrett's, quote, leadership cost Ohio State? One. I think I'd be willing to go to one, too. One is the most you could that. go to, and then yeah. one is a stretch because you don't know if he's the whole reason why they didn't win one. But there was one year, in my opinion, <laughs> that – Dwayne Haskins should have been playing over JT, and I understand the logistical nightmare that that would cause, and it's part of the same thing that I've given Kirby Smart stuff uh, crap for about picking Fromm's over field or Fromm over Fields in terms of logistics and stuff. But like in my opinion, you know, I admire that Nick Saban yanked his starting quarterback for a freshman in the national championship game, and if I were a coach, I think that that's how I would do it: best player on the field at all times. And I know that there is some question and pushback as to whether or not Dwayne Haskins was better um, as a redshirt freshman than Field. I mean, than Barrett was as a senior. But I believe that he was, or would have been, especially considering the fact of what we saw in that Michigan game when he came in in the second half and won that game on the road. So, you know, I, I don't know if that would have been enough to win a national championship. But I do think that JT started one year too long. I think I would agree with that. Um... While acknowledging how difficult it would have been to make make the change, I would not put 2015 on JT. Ohio State should have won a national title in 2015, but I put that all on the coaching staff who couldn't pull their heads out of their asses and figure out what they were doing offensively. I don't put that on JT. He was he was set up for failure. He and Cardell Jones both were set up for failure, in my opinion, by the coaching staff that year. So I don't think it's either of their fault. Uh, 2016, JT was the starter, but I just don't know, even with a better quarterback, if that offense had the pieces around him to be a national championship caliber team. Uh, 2017, I think maybe they did. And it's kind of a funny thing because we opened the show talking about how good JT Barrett was 
against Penn State and how that has an argument for being his best game ever that year. But he was also not good against Oklahoma, which is when everyone wanted him to make a change. And then he threw, I think it was four picks against Iowa. And the Iowa loss wasn't just him, but it was partly him. And it was clear that there was that team had a little more to it than 2016, at least offensively, and and some part of JT's shortcomings, I think, were, were what held them back. And you know, we, there's no guarantee that Dwayne would have been great that year if he if they made the switch after Oklahoma. But if you feel that way, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. And I think if you want to say that JT being kept in that starting position cost him a national championship, I, I think I can get there. I think that. The 2015 thing is completely out of JT's hands. I think that that whole thing was a cluster to begin with, and I think what went wrong, we'd have a whole podcast about that. Um, 2016, I don't think there were enough tools. 2017 is the year that I wonder if things would have gone a little bit differently because I do think that 2017 and 2018, when Ohio State didn't make the playoff, um, they were talented enough, I think, to to hang the, the... the finished version of those teams at the end of the year were talented enough to hang in the playoff games that we watched that year. And like, I remember like writing from the cotton bowl that this isn't where Ohio state should be. And you know, this isn't a very good game and all the things that, you know, happened. And it's just like, they were one loss away from getting the playoff and maybe it wasn't JT, but if it was somebody else that was more, you know, explosive, um, maybe they wouldn't have lost the game that they lost, and maybe they would have gotten in the playoff, and who knows what would have happened, because in my opinion, my core philosophy is you want to get to the stage, and Ohio State had too many good teams that missed the stage for too many years in a row, and those years coincided with JT Barrett starting. So it's tough. I think one is the furthest you can push it, and if you wanted to say zero, I could agree with that too. Yeah, I, I agree too. Like I almost want to say like half – <laughs> which I know is not an answer to the question. Yeah, but uh, and like to, I think about the 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 bar we're holding Ohio State here too is is pretty high because in 2017 they were top ten in the country in total offense and total defense, but there was a, there was an explosive element on the offense that was missing. They averaged fewer than seven yards per play that year, um, and it wasn't just the passing game. Like the running game, I think could have been a little better too. Um, although J.K. Dobbins is really good that year, so. Maybe they couldn't figure out Dobbins and Weber once Weber got healthy, but that was still pretty good, pretty solid running game. There just wasn't as much. The game kind of changed, right? And you were talking about this, I think, before in the last show when you were listening to to the Barton and Bud podcast on two four seven about how you need first round NFL caliber quarterbacks and and I think a more sophisticated passing game now to win national titles. And this is right around the time when that started the shift. Twenty sixteen was probably when it really started the shift with Deshaun Watson, and this is the year after that in twenty seventeen. And I just don't think Ohio State was there. They were better. It was the first year of Ryan Day and Kevin Wilson coming in, and they were much better throwing the ball that year than they were in 2016, but they still weren't good enough. And I think maybe they could have become good enough had they turned things over to Dwayne. Or even, I don't even know, maybe Joe for that matter. I don't even know. Right. All right. Uh, well, the other thing, too, Bill, on the second half yeah. of this question, what Joe Burrow did at LSU was one of the craziest transformations of any player in the history of the game. And, like, Obviously, Meyer did get a lot of crap for picking Barrett over Haskins and Burrow, but Burrow to LSU and uh, Fields to Ohio State are so vastly different because Fields is so good because he's an athletic freak. Anybody who looks at him knows that this guy is capable of things physically that other people aren't. And not to take anything away from Joe Burrow, who might now be the best quarterback who ever played the game at the college level, but it should have been easier to identify what Fields was going to be. So... 
I don't know that I agree at all that Meyer didn't get crap. Meyer got crap for everything in the last three years of his, his coaching career at Ohio State. But I do think that Fromm was in a better position or a more easy position to identify what he had than Meyer was before he let Burrow go because Burrow was let go in the person that he picked was a top 15 pick. So, like, I mean, it's not it's not the same thing. And I, and I get tired of seeing people talking about it like it's the same thing because it's not. All right, let's do two more questions. Uh, this first one we'll try to knock out quickly from Nate W. He says, in case another lockdown happens, what are your favorite takeout delivery options in Columbus? And I know, Ari, you're not in Columbus anymore, but you certainly have an affinity for food places around here. Um, when you, you did not spend much time here during a lockdown anyway. I actually forget how long you were here. But while you were here, were there any places you kept going to for takeout uh, or delivery or any places in general that you grew particularly fond of while you were living in Columbus? Well, like the thing about Columbus – uh, my life in Columbus um, while we weren't on uh, quarantine and is that like I ordered Uber Eats all the time <laughs> so like I don't know if that counts as takeout but there are some really really good places and the one thing that I will say that I think I discovered a little bit too late is just how good Plank's Pizza is I, I really liked Plank's because um, I love sweet sauce on thin crust Columbus style pizza and that was a really good spot, and I was way too late to the game on that. Um, I really like Tommy's Diner, which is kind of a weird place to get takeout from, and that's on the uh, it's in Franklinton, but they've got amazing, amazing food. <laughs> um, and like to support um, small businesses during this time, those are like ones that kind of like popped into my head. I love Massey's Pizza, but that's more of a chain now. I love Tommy's Pizza. Uh, everybody loves Tommy's that you're not learning anything new from me. And, um, you know, there's a bunch of places on high street too, where I would get food from too. So like, to me, I would just say, hit your postmates mates hard. And I always tried new things and sometimes it was good. Sometimes it wasn't. Um, but Columbus has a, a lot of good food. So, uh, I have, we live on the East side of Columbus and there's a new hangover easy on Parsons Avenue in old town East. Um, the there is one on campus it's like a campus breakfast place but they move one over here and i am not not exaggerating i think i've probably gone there once once a week since uh this whole uh change kind of happened and i just go there for once a week i get takeout breakfast i usually get the pork belly benedict it's great um they have a really good breakfast sandwich there too but everything there i think is good and it's like there's not a lot of super convenient local spots near my house but that's one of them so i've been going there uh and I hadn't gone there a bunch beforehand. And another place I've gone to twice, I think, that I'd never gone to before is in Worthington. And it's called Sassafras Bakery. And they had, and you got to like sweets, I guess. They have a breakfast sandwich there that's pretty good. But if you like sweets, they have this, uh, it's like a chocolate, double chocolate cookie. So it's like chocolate cookie dough, chocolate chip, and it's really rich. And then in between that, they make a sandwich and they put like buttermint cream in the middle of them. And it tastes... Uh, a little like a thin mint, but not quite as harsh. It's a little sweeter. It's really good. It's probably the best like baked item I've ever had in my life. And I don't know if it's something they have all the time, but I got it maybe two months ago and it was awesome. And like, if you eat a lot of them, you weigh 900 pounds, but if you eat them in moderation, they're really good. So I would check out Sassafras Breaker. They have other stuff there that was good too, but those cookies are phenomenal. I really liked Fusion, the Asian place. They have got really good sushi. If you're a sushi person, um, yeah, there's so many places. I miss it now. Grandview Cafe has good food. Um, I, I just like somebody tweeted a while ago, like support local businesses. And they had like Papa John's McDonald's and Subway on there. <laughs> and I said, yeah, those are real local, dude. 
and everybody's like, dude, shut up, man. Uh, they're local franchises from local owners. So it's like, I don't want to like say, stay away from big chains, but you want to know what's a really good burger. Have you ever been to the chop shop on high in lane? I have not. I've wanted to go there, but I have not been. That place has a tremendous burger and it travels well. And, um, you know, I, I do think that like postmates, I ate my way through Columbus by having somebody bring it to me, which is part of the reason why I've got to sign for up for a personal trainer now. You make a good point about it traveling well, especially if you're ordering delivery. Got to make sure it travels well. Right. All right. Let's do the last question on this. This was a uh, topic of much consternation on Ohio State Twitter last week. Uh, Douglas F. asked us, who was the most deserving Buckeye left off of the Big Ten Network's all-decade team? And if you were on Twitter last week, you would have saw a lot of folks upset about some of these picks. Ohio State had eight on the first team, which is the most of any program. I'll just run through who was picked real quick. Uh, Urban Meyer was the coach. JT Barrett was the quarterback. Uh, Braxton Miller was the all-purpose player. Chase Young and Joey Bosa were among the two, two of the four defensive linemen. Malik Hooker was a safety. Wyatt Davis and Billy Price were the two two of the five offensive linemen. Uh, I think the biggest or most deserving guy left off is pretty obvious. Who, Bosa? No, Bosa was on there. Zeke Elliott. Zeke Elliott was a second teamer, so that's what's kind of No, I'm talking I'm talking first team. Okay, yeah, well took, Zeke Elliott should have been a first team. Yeah. But I but there were two Bosas. <laughs> and I think at times there was a very really tough uh way to decide who was better. Um and I mean Elliot absolutely should have been the first uh, running back on there, but it's like so stupid because it's like they can't be the whole team. Like, and everybody was freaking out about it. Like, they were really well represented. It's not like the the personal offended reporters out there are, are kind of insufferable. <laughs> it's like if you're listening to this, like, and you're like tweeting about like, oh, there should have been more Buckeyes. Like, get a life, dude. Yeah, I didn't. The only thing I I had a quibble with was Braxton Miller's the all-purpose. Like I thought that was kind of like a BS kind of shoehorn deal to avoid a tougher decision at quarterback because he also Braxton Miller to yeah. receiver thing like didn't work. Like I know that he played it, so I guess he technically qualified. And it would be a hell of a thing for him to not be on this list because he's probably the best athlete in the conference over the last decade. But he is not an all-purpose player in my mind. He's a quarterback, and I think they should have approached that as such JT Barrett is the worst quarterback of the last 10 years and he was the one that was chosen and I think part of the reason why is because stats are a part of this years of service have to be a part of this um mm-hmm. but like he's not better than Justin Fields he's not better than Dwayne Haskins he's not better than Braxton Miller he might not yeah. even be better than Cardell Jones and he might not be better than anybody else that I'm forgetting right now we did uh, we did our own Ohio State All-Decade team a long time. We might have did it like last season, or maybe it was in January, like before all this stuff happened. And the, the central question was, are we, are we trying to just make the best possible football team to go win a game that we can make, or are we like trying to honor awards and stats and like place in the record books and all that stuff? Because there's are two very different conversations. If it's just go win a game, I don't think I'd pick Barry. We ended up picking Haskins. Um, if you're taking all that into account, like JT won the silver football, he was, I think, was he a two-time or three-time Big Ten quarterback of, of the year? Um, like he is four-time he is captain. The, he's like the face of it. Yeah. He's the defining quarterback of the Irvine era, which makes him the defining quarterback of the Big Ten over the last decade, in my opinion. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have to pick him. It just depends on what your criteria are. And I agree that he's not the best, but. Maybe in this case he was the most deserving. I don't have any issue with it. I thought that's who who they would have picked, and I think that's who I would have picked too. 
based off what they were doing. But just, the idea that like yeah. Zeke Elliott wasn't first team and Saquon Barkley and Jonathan Taylor were is crazy to me. And also that Ohio State didn't have a cornerback. Of all its good cornerbacks, they didn't have any make this team. Make the the first cornerback team. thing was like the thing that everybody was freaking out about. I think it was funny because one of the storylines that was created um, this past year was that Dobbins was better than Jonathan Taylor. And I think we all started kind of thinking about that a little bit more. I don't know if it's true or not, um, but at least it was a conversation, and like Dobbins wasn't as good as Elliott. Yeah, Jonathan Taylor was pretty good. It's always hard, I think, when you're when you're a Ohio State fan because you just watch them. You watch guys when they play Ohio State, and you think they all suck because you always see them against Ohio State. They don't suck. Um, I still would pick Zeke Elliott over both of those guys because only one of these guys, only one team in the last decade has won a national title. And, like, only one of these backs was the workhorse for a national championship winner in addition to having two, was it, 1,800-yard seasons. I don't. I just don't know how you leave them off. Agreed. But the corners, whatever. I get, like, Darquez Denard and uh, was it Desmond King from Iowa. They're good corners. Antoine Winfield Jr., who just got finished in Minnesota, was also on the list as a safety with Malik Hooker. Um, and Wyatt Davis made it, too, having only played one year in a decade, which was pretty crazy. I think maybe Pat Elfline had an argument. I would even consider putting Pat Elfline over Billy Price. I think Elfline was a little bit better of a player when he was here than, than Billy Price was. Um, but, yeah, eight players, the most of anyone in the conference, and somehow there are still things to complain about on I th- Twitter. I, th- I think that if you – this is going to sound so homerish and just, like, shoot me now. But I think you can make an argument that everybody who made the list on the first team, you could find a player from the last decade that was better at Ohio State. So I think like that that makes sense because of how much better Ohio State has recruited than the rest of the teams. But in order to make this list fun and interesting, you can't just pick all the ones from Ohio State. So I understand that no matter what you do, people are going to be left off. Yeah. yeah Is that homery? No, no, I think it's true. I mean, even if it, if, you, if someone wants to call it homery, it's still true. Um, they're the best team in the league, and it, there's a gap, and there has been a gap for a long time. So you want to make an argument for any Ohio State guy, you can make it. Um but I also understand why, if you were the Big Ten Network, you wouldn't want to make this just the Ohio State team. Were you surprised that Urban won Coach of the Year or Coach of the Decade, considering he never won Coach of the Year? Uh, no. I mean, he is the reason why the Big Ten is kind of good now. <laughs> like, I mean, he yeah. like he he was the Big Ten. Like, and it was so funny because when he took the job, everybody would always joke about like, "Oh, the SEC is so much better. The Big Ten's slow, and it sucks." Like, he came up to the to the Big Ten, and now I think you can make the case that they're the second best conference in America. And I think that that, that is worst, all. Yeah. All nobody's better than the SEC. Like, I know that like the Big Ten East has been pretty good, and when Penn State's kicking it and Michigan's kicking, nobody's better than the SEC. I don't even think it's a, a debate. Um, if you want to debate, maybe we can do it on our next podcast. But, like, the SEC is king. Um, and until uh, the talent cha- the talent that is in the south comes up north, there's just more players down there and there's more schools that have access to those players. I mean, it's just – it is what it is. But the Big Ten now has risen to at least be in that conversation because of Urban Meyer. And there's no any, – if anybody else would have won that, it would have been a joke. He closed the gap for sure. I don't. I don't think the Big Ten's better than the SEC, but the the gap was pretty damn right. wide when he got here, and now it is. It's not nearly invisible, but it is significantly smaller. Right. I agree. And yeah, he deserves he deserves the nod for it. I was just waiting for it because my God, if he did not win Coach of the Year, well, who else would have been able? Who would have? I don't even know who else you could make the case for. 
James Franklin? I think the only other one would be D'Antonio, which I guess the timing of that would not have been great. Yeah. Um, Kirk Ferentz, I guess. I don't know. He's yeah, been I guess here Kirk forever, Ferentz. But the timing of that would also not have been great. Um, but even with that, even if you were trying to avoid uncomfortable conversations, like, and, you know, there are uncomfortable conversations I have with Urban, I guess, too. But he was, wasn't even, I don't know why you even think twice about it, but. I, I bet the you they didn't. <laughs> yeah. I hope they didn't because it's quite obvious with at least with that one. If I if we maybe maybe permitted a minute of uh, of homerism, like that is the most obvious choice you could have made. The Durban as the best coach of the decade in the Big 10. So, uh we'll wrap up there. Thank you guys again for sending in your questions. Really appreciate it. Uh really appreciate all the thought you put into the questions you send in. Again, we'll say one more time if you want to send in questions for future shows, get subscribed to the athletic theathletic.com/4-6. Thank you to everyone who sent in some five-star reviews on Apple. That helps us as well. If you have not done that and would like to, we'd greatly appreciate it. I went in and added one myself because I hadn't done it yet. Somebody left us a one-star review that said we weren't as good as Buckeye Talk, and then I left us a five-star review that said we are as good as Buckeye Talk, if not better. And Steven Means war. is the person who probably put that there. So, While we're waiting for football, I'm going to spice this up with a nice podcast war, I think. I think that's the move. If somebody from Buckeye Talk was the one that left that bullshit review on our thing... <laughs> We're going to find you. Like, I don't know who it was, but if you did it, you're going to pay for it. Like, and that's like, that's the Doug and me coming out. Like, if somebody, you don't mess with our podcast rating. You know, you can text me. You can call me an idiot. You can call me out on Twitter. Don't you dare mess with our podcast rating. It kind of reminds me of like this, like, um, Biggie Tupac thing. You know what I mean? Where they both like were mad at each other, but like neither of them really had that much beef. Yeah, but we'll manufacture beef for the sake of entertainment and to yeah, keep ourselves getting bored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're trying to sell records here. All right, all right. We got we'll beef, to you guys. You, Doug. Yeah, we got beef. We'll talk to you guys next week. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.